This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Andor Roll, part of the Pantheon Network. And on today's episode, you will hear Dave Swanson tell the story of his band The Pop, which he originally formed in Los Angeles in the early 70s with his partner Roger Prescott. The Pop were around when Van Halen first started and they sort of and they sort of rode that wave from glam hard rock to new wave power pop. First, we will hear Dave talk about writing one of my favorite power pop songs, the song we're hearing now called Shake Away from the 1979 album by the pop called Go. And then Dave will tell the story of the pop from his beginnings in Chicago to the end of the band in the early 80s. One of my favorites is Shake Away. Can you talk about yeah, putting I, that song together? I really love that song. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, it was a very uh, quick song. It was one of those things where I was sitting around. Uh, this was, we had just gotten signed, I think, to Arista. Uh, it was right at the beginning of, the end of 78, mm-hmm. into 79, probably right after the holidays. We were casting about for... Um, 
producers at that point, and I was spending a lot of time, of course, trying to write. In my mind, it had a, a kind of an apocalyptic meaning or a implication, if you will, of an end times, some sort of Freudian death consciousness or something, you know, where where it doesn't come across that way. But but I was thinking, you wake up with this kind of sense of excited, anxious foreboding about the greater condition of humanity. Uh, you know, woke up this morning with a rattle in my brain, gotta get gone lest I remain. Uh, you're just kind of filling up some space there. But you, so I, you're trying to outrun that feeling and not remain in this foreboding thing, but having a conscious sense of imminent peril, if you will, <laughs> or, uh, you know, um, devolution of, con of the condition of the world, right? It, and, and if the thought catches up to you, and just trying to shake it off, basically. You know, shake off that that has become, I don't know, I think for many young people today, I mean, I'm talking, you know, the, the people who are in their 20s, 30, early 30s, 20s to 30. I think there's a, I think they're much more despondent than we were at that age back then. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the world is a darker place for them. Uh, I think there's less hope for them now than there may have been for us. I'm not sure about that. It's all relative, I suppose. But as I look over the course of, you know, my seven decades now of my life, you know, and a lot of it is just nostalgia, I suppose. But I do feel that the, the, that the music was better when I was a kid, you know than it is now um, and that's debatable I know but but that that things just in general were e simpler easier more direct more um, somehow in integrated and, and hence more supportive in some sort of cultural way uh, in, in that sense of cultural integration I think we're much more isolated now and so forth but even even at that stage when I you know signed to Arista in that 1978, 79 space there, I would have these senses of, you know, uh, impending doom or something, you know, especially just smoking a lot of grass or something like that, you know, <laughs> drinking too much and smoking dope. I mean, yeah, you get a little depressive, you know, a little maudlin. So it was like that. And it was the whole idea was just to, to shake it off, you know, get up, get act, you know, get, get into gear run around, have some fun, you know, stick my head out, take a look around, hear all the sights and see all the sounds, you know, let's shake, shake away, you know, that kind of thing. So that's what, it, that's what it meant to me, and it just came out very quickly. I used to play in Madison when I was still living in Chicago. Before I went to LA, 
they had a power trio at the time called Shaky J. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was the bass player and we did covers of The Who and a lot of Humble Pie and I don't know, some Johnny Winter and that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, so what, where, you, where would you like to start? I mean, that's kind of a starting, a jumping off point for me in terms of my personal history in L.A., uh, yeah, I went there in the beginning, uh, early May, not the beginning, but May of uh, 72, left uh, Shaky Jake there and um, went out uh, to L.A. with a plan of sort of writing these retro pop-ish Think Now, Think 72. I was thinking, you know, I actually had this thing, you know, this concept in my head you know, slightly retro, like some kind of like uh, Johnny Angel on the Flying Tigers, 56 Cadillac, strange sort of hybrid glitter smash, you know, the glitter, the glitter smashers had occurred, okay, from England, Slade, uh, T-Rex, uh, some some of those guys, you know, were, and, and Stewart too, of course, with the with faces and now uh, yeah, with the Every Picture Tells a Story tours that came through Chicago just the year before. So there was kind of this glitterish thing going on that I wanted to kind of carry in with a kind of a retro cast thing to it. I'm moving forward with um, these kind of, you know, I guess the, the term hadn't really occurred yet, but a power popish edge to or, or direction of the songs. Uh, I'd always written songs since, since I was about 15, 16. And so I, I was already, I already considered myself to be a songwriter. And so I was kind of trying to cobble together. A, I did cobble together a, oh, a, I don't know, dozen and a half of these type songs, some of which were, I mean, it not, you know, it wasn't that well honed so that it wasn't like a, cookie cutter kind of stamp to the songs but there was that kind of influence in in a few of them and just general pop uh rock sort of sensibility to the rest or rock you know and so i went up there with this sort of concept in mind those back in the days when concepts were starting to evolve right yeah uh, we need to look no further we need to look no further than bowie's advent in that same year you know, he came with such force that it was somewhat stunning myself having just gotten there sort of with this other idea. You know, I mean, it didn't really throw me off course, but, uh, it, you know, I, there was a natural sort of uh, reaction, I think, that, oh, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and yet you couldn't help but sort of be influenced by it mm -hmm. at the same time. So uh, anyway, so I kind of knocked around for the first few months and uh, you know, there was this place out in, in Hollywood called the Musicians Contact Service, which you may know about, but uh, they had like these, you know, big three ring binders full of like drummers, guitar players, singers, bass players, keyboard players, you know. And so you'd pay your 25 bucks or whatever, and you get to go in there and hunt through these these volumes of, 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 per, of people, uh, musicians, and uh, based on their synopses of themselves um and their directions and so forth you you know take some numbers and call them you know one thing led to another i met a couple of managers and so forth so i knocked around for a few months trying to get a piece of band together and not much was really happening 
And uh, one of the people I'd called was Roger Prescott. And for his phone conversation was was not, if not hostile, just a, just a little, just a little standoffish, little uh, um, sort of acrimonious, you know, undercurrent. Oh, well, I don't want to do that. I've already done that. No, I'm not doing that. You know, in terms of musical sensibilities and, and things, and uh, we both had the same idea. He he wanted to, you know, put a band together, and so did I. And so we didn't click that first conversation and never got together. But long about October of that year, nothing still had, had been going, I guess, for either of us. He called me and said, well, we talked before. Do you remember? I said, yeah, yeah. How can I forget? <laughs> and, uh, and he said, what do you, <clears throat> you know, anything going on with you? And I said, no, not really. And then, uh, he said, well, you know, why don't we sit down and just, you know, take another revisit this thing, you know, and just see if there's any, anything, uh, that we have in common. And, and, uh, so we did that and, um, and we decided, well, yeah, we did have, I mean, he was a little more blues rock oriented. He was, he'd come from actually originally from Virginia and up via Boston where he had met, uh, some, uh, people. He actually auditioned, I think for Aerosmith at one point or, uh, yeah, I think he did. And, um, he knew, knew those guys in their formative stage or their embryonic stage anyway. And he also met uh, David Robinson who and, and the Modern Lovers up in Boston, um, Jonathan Richmond, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, Roger and I started to get together in earnest that, that fall of 72 and worked and then pretty much worked around 73. We played a couple of acoustic sort of, you know, showcase type things. <clears throat> we, were, we were actually calling ourselves Noggin and Twin um, for a brief moment, and um, and we did these sort of really weird sort of I don't know kind of glitterish, uh, glitter smasherish pop acoustic things, you know, with strange songs, uh, melodic things, you know, and we would sing in harmony some of the time and I would sing the rest of the time, you know, and, uh, it was kind of interesting and fun and it, it the days of platform shoes and strange attire of some, some form or other, some of it, you know, a lot of mine was, I was kind of homemade. I had a girlfriend who was sewing stuff for me and she was actually from the art Institute in Chicago too. And she had come out to join me in the beginning of 73 and, was you know she was helpful in that regard of wardrobe she was very into fashion she had been a silkscreen artist at the art institute um in chicago that's what she's been studying so there was some silkscreeny stuff and you know it's just in in terms of fabrics and clothing and stuff so it was a lot about the look and the kind of trying to consolidate a kind of a an imagey thing that uh you know there was kind of this airy fairy about the whole thing, especially with the influence of Bowie and the spiders from Mars. So uh, it was kind of a, a, a mixture, maxture. And then uh, eventually we decided, no, no, we really want to get a, you know, we, and, and we knew this, we wanted to get a drummer and be a rock band. We didn't want to play acoustic guitars, but uh, we were just doing that uh, tempor- temporarily to kind of, you know, they will, you know, get used to each other's playing and kind of homing in on what it was we wanted to do. So we had tried a couple of different drummers that wasn't working. And finally 
I think at the end of 73, um, the Modern Lovers had come to L.A. to finish their album, which they began with John Cale in, in the East, but then he flamed out, and Warner Brothers had put them together with Kim Fowley to finish their record. Um, so they were in L.A. and on the verge of not only finishing the record, but I, I guess they finished the record with Kim Fowley, delivered it to Warner Brothers, and then promptly broke up. Um, but we had seen them at the, uh, I don't know, the whiskey or someplace. And, and I'd met Robinson and then we talked, uh, and said, what are you going to do now? And I said, we really need a drummer. Why don't you come back? And cause he was going to go back for the holidays and, and then he didn't know what he was going to do to Boston. And, uh, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll come back. So after the holidays, he did come back and we, and that's when we, in the spring of 74, then came up with the name pop it was just pop in the beginning and we did a logo and Susie the silkscreen girlfriend did t-shirts for you know we did a bunch of t-shirts and stuff it was we had a kind of this, uh, spiraling you know circus type lettering that said pop with an exclamation point and that was our thing right we made some we made signage and so forth that um, went along with that and and so it was kind of this power pop stuff, the the term for which had not been coined yet, going into 74, and we eventually uh, found the fellow by the name of Steve T, Steve Ketch, actually, uh, not Steven Tetch, the jazz guy, fusion guy, but Steve Tetch, T-E-T-S-C-H, I think it might have been the same spelling, I'm not sure, but he just went by Steve T, and uh and he was a four and a second guitar player. I was playing bass and, you know, Roger and I were writing songs, all these songs. And we were going for a vocal sound as much as, as an instrumental sound. Uh, <clears throat> so we did have three part harmony and it was, you know, but it was, you know, it was rock, you know, and it was like sort of, we were pushing into that mold of the reason for the name pop was we were alluding to, um, the pop art movement, um, that, you know, from the mid to late sixties that had just preceded, uh, you know, us in the art world, you know, and, but, you know, alluding to the pop artness of the who, um, the kinks, the, and now the sweet, just a general pop artness of, of the culture of the rock and roll culture. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but it was a hard sell because people thought, well, pop, are you talking about the Carpenters or, you know, who, um, like David Cassidy, who the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? You know, what, 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 what does this mean? What does this name mean? So, uh, you know, who, where are you guys in this thing? And so it, we always had to kind of, it was an uphill battle sort of to get people to understand where we were coming from. When they saw the band, it was different. They could see it, you know, but, you know, before that, it, you know, song is worth a thousand words, right?
we started to get a toehold. We were just playing all anything we could get, any kind of gigs we could get. We had an we had a um, uh, uh, an agent at the time. We were looking for management, and uh, you know David Robinson knew a bunch of people because he, he knew people from Warner's, and they knew some managers. And so we were talking to d different people and different producers, uh, doing some demos here and there. Um, playing any gigs we could get, and we we found Roger found this agent, um, Mick Gamble, <laughs> appropriate agent name, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, he booked, uh, of all things, uh, fraternity parties at SC and U UCLA, USC and UCLA, uh, among other, you know, high school sock hops and other weird things that all of which we played, uh, and so seasonally, you know, like. In the spring and in in the winter, we'd have this barrage of these fraternity sorority gigs at these universities, and you know they were like four hour you know drunk uh, drinkathons, you know beerathons. Uh, but they had this wonderful um, at SC. They had this wonderful mixture. It was called the Green Death, and they would mix it in a plastic garbage can. Um, probably new. Uh, I mean, they never seemed to have much shortage of money in those places, but. Uh, so they would pour in uh, uh, um, ginger ale, um, cheap champagne, and vodka, and dry ice, and lime sherbet to make it green, right? So <laughs> it was like this deadly concoction that, you know, you drink by the tumbler full throughout the course of the evening. So there, were, there was a lot of drinking that went on in those days. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we play these gigs and sure enough you get better you know and uh people start to recognize the name then um after uh, then eventually while david robinson was still with us through somebody's recommendation uh he had reached out to a fellow by the name of uh alan rindy uh and uh, i think it was david who kind of made that contact that connection i'm not sure he was living in west hollywood at the time in an apartment and uh he became our manager slash he, he, no actually at the time well he did become our manager but at the time he was in partnership as a production company with a fellow by, by the name of george tobin george tobin had a um, recording studio on ventura boulevard in studio city called um you know, sound recorders, I believe. And it was a bona fide studio. He had, you know, in, uh, on, uh, right out in the main drag there, um, little east of Laurel Canyon on Ventura Boulevard. By that time, we, where were we? We had been back and forth. We started out living, Roger and I, up on Mulholland Drive, just at the very east end of it. Um, that didn't last because the house was for sale. We had to move. Then David Robinson joined us. We moved into a place on Sunshine Terrace. Uh, actually, he moved back while we were still on Mulholland, but we had to leave there quickly and found a house on, on Sunshine Terrace in Studio City that we all lived in for a while and were recorded there. And that's where a lot of this activity uh, emanated from, the Sunshine Terrace place. But eventually, we ended up in what we call the Pop Mansion at Riverside, River, uh, was it Riverton, Riverton and Ventura Boulevard. Um, several apartments by this time steve t had one of them roger had one of them and susan and i had one of them um and, and we stayed up for quite a while so that was sort of studio city was sort of our 
central area there for several years. And at the time that um, we uh, met Alan and then George, uh, Robinson was still with the band and we started recording with them. Stephen T was in the band too. Um, we started recording there and, uh, but, uh, oh, far into that, um, Berserk Records approached Robinson and we, we, we've sub licensed the Modern Lovers record from Warners and we want to put it out. We want to get the band together, back together. And so they persuaded him to do that. They came and they liked the limousine. He liked the limousine that they came and picked him up in the discussion. But anyway, so he went off and did that. And now we're without a drummer. And, 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 oh yeah. And just before that, I think we were playing some kind of big, uh, I don't know, high school dance or something. And Steve T and Roger had gotten into a fight. Steve T was, uh, <laughs> he was really a, a child of privilege, privilege. You know, he was an only child lived in Pacific Palisades. Um, you know, was just, you know, had zero sense of responsibility to much of anyone or anything. Although he did like stand. So he, you know, mostly showed up. Um, I sometimes took some cajoling and wheedling on our part, but so Roger and he had gotten an, an argument on stage about something and Roger slapped him in the face and bloodied his nose. So mm. he had, he had quit just shortly before Robinson um, was uh, swept away by the black limousines of um, Berserkly Records. But now we're, it's just me and Roger again and Alan and George. Well, the George business wasn't going very well. Um, he had, you know, com very commercial sensibilities and was only used to working with single singers, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, solo artist singers. And he'd worked, I don't know, I don't know, I can't even remember now. I think he had something to do with Gene Pitney at one point. Uh, years before, had a couple of hits, some a song called Cinnamon, Let Me In. I mean, that kind of stuff, bubblegumish. And so that wasn't going well, especially in in Roger's opinion. You know, I was perhaps more flexible on that. But Roger was didn't get along with George Atoll. So eventually, Alan bought us out from George and took us over, even though they were still in association in the studio as his sort of sole project. And we had a production deal with them. So he he bought that out and, and he became the the curator of that uh, or the, the overseer of that, uh, that that deal. At that point, we just were working with him. So we continued recording. We got involved with a couple of different musicians at the time, a fellow I'd played with years before in Chicago, actually in, when I was in college, uh, Lee Rybacek, who had moved to L.A., actually became known as Lee Kicks, a good drummer, very good drummer, um, but, you know, not not really pop material in terms of member stuff for some reason. I can't remember why. I think he just really wanted to make a living as a studio player, basically, or get with somebody who actually had a deal. Mm -hmm. But he helped us out for several tracks. And, a, and another guitar player by the name of Jamie Herndon, a Texan, a very good musician, uh, great guitar player, tremendous uh, slide guitar player, and and some piano, some you know fairly decent piano. And he actually wrote 
a song called Down on the Boulevard, which we did a version of with George Van Allen, but later re, you know, uh, rearranged and rewrote a verse for, though we never got writing credit for it, unfortunately, in the later incarnation, because George, George had swept up the publishing to that uh, in the first place somehow from Jamie. And so we couldn't, and it never worked out that he would honorably say, "Oh, he, this is a slight, this is a different song." <laughs> you got, you know, uh, by title he just retained the title, and that we never got writing credit for what became the so-called, you know, sort of legacy hit of the pop, which was down on the boulevard. About this time, we brought out from Chicago, invited out from Chicago, the guitar player from Shaky Jake, Rick Bittner. And he became our second guitar player. Uh, we found a drummer, a fellow by the name of Joel, Joel Martinez. Joel, not Joel, but Joel Martinez, uh, a blonde haired uh, Mexican from Mexico City. His mother had been, uh, was, was German or was and his father was Mexican and, and we called him he, and he sat really low and sort of like a low rider drummer so that was kind of how we you know marketed him or, or advertised him you know that was his sort of claim to fame and um, and you know Rick, Rick liked to refer him refer to him as yeah I like Joel when we were auditioning drummers yeah I like Joel he, he's a slasher <laughs> so we ended up going with him, and, and unfortunately, Joel had a serious drug problem later on, and um, et cetera. So I'll get into that. And meanwhile, you know, our, our music is evolving a little bit, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty hard rock stuff. Roger started to be influenced a, a slightly, somewhat unduly, I thought, in, in my estimation, by um, by the then burgeoning um, Aerosmith, and you know, I. I, I was staying kind of more the um, birds-ish, who-ish side of things. My ideal for sound, and to this day, and some of the late demos that I did independently of the pop later late, late in my career, were exactly what I envisioned with sort of a, a, a if there were an offspring, if the birds, if the early birds and, and, the, and 
the early who had mated and had some sort of hybrid offspring. That's that's kind of what I you know wanted and and went for in my music ultimately. The ultimate rock sound was in my brain as that, and so it always had been. That was always kind of where I want I wanted. I was pulling it that way. Roger was pulling a little more to the the harder rock stuff. Um, and so it was, a, it was a good blend. I mean, we, we were, we were somewhat foils for each other in that and came up with stuff that was somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Uh, although leaning this way or that way, uh, depending on who wrote the song. Initially we had done a fair amount of co-writing, but that diminished over time. Although being in direct association in a band, there's always that arrangemental influence of each other and which is you know, pretty tantamount to bow riding, you know, if not exactly such. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the way that it, that was playing out, was playing out, but not yet. We were still sort of co-writing and certainly co-involved in driving the band forward. So we had now had Rick Bittner from Shaky Jake and Joel Martinez on drums, and Alan was our was a producer slash manager at that point. He was really in our corner. He was terrific. Um, I mean, really, I, I can say nothing. I mean, okay, he had corny ideas and you had to take them with a grain of salt, but he, he always had ideas and he was always there to back us up and help us out when, the, you know, if a guitar got stolen or an amp blew up or something like that, he was, he was there. He got us into some meaningful... Um, I don't know situations later. The, the the primary one, the the pivotal one being now was an event that we. Well, at, let me back up just a hair here. And this was the summer of the early spring of '76. By this time, we had put out one record, Backdoor Man, a fanzine from that Backdoor Man magazine a fanzine from the South Bay area, like Long Beach down, down around there somewhere, Redondo, a group of people had gotten behind us and were in our corner and they would write these articles about us in their fanzine. They'd come to our shows. And ultimately uh, there was Don Waller, Greg Turner, Dee Dee Faye, Tom Gardner. Uh, I don't know if I got them all, but uh, those, they were, uh, the four main ones uh, of the group and of these, you know, these, they were just fans. They were wild. The, you know, like they were rock and roll. They loved and, uh, a band called the dogs who had come out from Detroit, Lauren Molinaire, uh, Mary and Ron, Ronnie Wood, Ron Wood was actually his name. Um, Mary, Mary, I can't remember her last name. Oh, damn it. Uh, but Lauren was the leader of the band. They were a power trio out of Detroit. The motels had shown up at the same time, come down from San Francisco, the Bay Area, Martha Davis. And at this time, we had all met up, the three bands, along with a few other incidental ones that I can't remember any of. There was a call put out in the L.A. Times by the Park Service, uh, by the uh, Municipal Park service guy, uh, director, to have concerts in the parks around Los Angeles, a few places. 
like well, like I think there was one out in the valley of Sita or someplace. You know, not Deep Valley, but along West Ventura Boulevard, um, out that direction, Van Nuys. Griffith Park, of course, was a big place. And I can't remember if there was. Oh, yeah, the one over in uh, down by Hillcrest Country Club in Beverly Hills. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, Beverly Hills Park, somewhere over there. And um, um, so um, those are the three places that we played and at, at these summer concerts. So we met out at in North Hollywood at some civic building with this park director, you know, running this thing. And we all showed up and that's how we met the dogs in the motels. And, um, and sure enough, we did these gigs. They, they would provide the PAs and uh, it would be a Sunday afternoon event, you know? And so uh, there were several of these in, in uh, the early part of 76 um, spring, really early spring. Cause you know, it's always summer there pretty much, you know, if it's not raining. Over the course of, I don't know, just a couple of months, the idea came about, and I think uh, Alan, uh, was was primarily us, you know, myself and Roger and Alan, said, you know, we need to do something because we can't get into these clubs on Sunset Boulevard. They had essentially locked down. There had been some musical going on, uh, El Grande Coca-Cola going on at the Whiskey for years at that point. It just had moved in there. Nobody could get them out of there. And it was a musical and, and of some kind. I never even saw it, but it was just there forever. And the Starwood was only booking, um, you know, kind of new signed acts. So they were like, you know, acts without much following yet. That the Hollywood record machine was, you know, spewing forward and spewing out on a continual basis. And there was, there were, I don't know, there wasn't really any other club. I can't even remember. There were, there was, there were some others in existence, but again, they were either like kind of folk, uh, folk rock clubs or kind of that West Coast sound, but you know, signed folkish acts that they, and so there was no place to play. And the only place that was a rock club on the, on the strip was Gazari's dance club. And, and, um, Van Halen, had you know was was house band for that place were there all the time so there was no place to play on the strip and we need to get we needed to break into hollywood and break it open so we we, we invented this um event called radio free hollywood and we rented troopers hall which is on la brea just uh, just off of franklin uh, on la brea uh in hollywood it was an old Exactly that. Troopers for, you know, the for actors, the club, big club hall, house hall. And we booked that and we had um, the motels, the dogs. We headlined it because we were doing it. And um, and we were probably the, um, we were the best band. <laughs> There's no question about that. But and, and, and a band called, I think, The Boys, Y-Z. Uh, I think there were four acts and, and it was really cool. I mean, you know, Martha got her piece into it and, you know, had some, uh, some skits for her. She had two daughters already at the time and we had the kids doing some skits and I don't know. It was, it was, it was and we publicized the hell out of it. Um, Alan got press for us. I don't remember. If, I don't think we sold tickets in advance, but it was like there was this pent up need for something like that. 
And so, and, and plus all the band, all these bands had been playing these park gigs. So we had already followings and we had the back on man group behind us. And, and we had just put out 45 prior to that, um, very recently to this, uh, very, very recently previous to this. It was our first single. It was uh, break the chain and, uh, Hit and Run Lover, right, Lover, right, right, right. Hit and Run Lover was the first. Uh, was actually the more the A, the A side. this gig and it was tremendously well received it was packed I mean, really i mean there must have been 400 feet from this hall of a you know, i mean it's just like a multi-purpose room sort of size hall you know so jam-packed with people they loved it it was great fun writers there uh and shaw he also had a fan team called bop and he was actually the one who coined the term, it, as far as I understand it, far in my recollection, power pop, and spe- in specific reference to our sound. <clears throat> uh, he wrote, you know, the review of the show, and that became a, a useful kind of term. And of course, the rest is history in that regard because it's broadly used now. Anyway, so it was a very successful thing, and what happened as a result of that was the, was that these clubs started to book unsigned local bands that had, you know, because they said, well, shoot, they had, you know, 400 people at this show. Maybe we can, you know, they're, they have following. So let's book them. So Starwood opened up, uh, eventually the rainbow opened up to us, but that was a little later whiskey. And we played a number of shows there. Uh, stuff started opening up all over the place. Club all, all stripes, you know, uh, and that spread out from there. I mean, we had played a lot of beer bars over the years as, as a papa uh, with David Robinson and Steve T before any of those other later transformations occurred. But uh, we, we'd been playing a lot for a long time, but this really was the meat of it now because we could do our shows, you know, do our original sets and you know, to a night and, you know, feel like we were accomplishing something. Plus we had had, we had a couple of singles out right on the heels of Radio Free Hollywood. We put out the Down on the Boulevard EP with Easy Action and I Need You by the Kinks. And, uh, the, and at that point, backdoor, that was also a backdoor man funded uh, you know, label thing. Uh, they, invented the, they invented the backdoor man record label. Uh, for our records, and they did some other ones too. Eventually, one of those guys 
spun off from that group uh, and had got some money, inherited some money or something, Greg Turner, and he and Alan then funded the completion of our first independent record on the automatic record label, which, which we invented. There's nothing wasn't approved of by Roger and I. Didn't matter what it was. You know? mm-hmm. We, you know, we had a grip on things, and which was part of the, part of the problem, I think. But nonetheless, that was the condition of our existential condition. And that album came out at the end, and that took a couple more years. Uh, the end of '77 or the beginning of '78. I can't remember when we finally got that album packaged up and out. What? Oh, and. Yeah, along the way, then, over the course of the next year and a half, from Radio Free Hollywood to, and I don't really think it was that long before that record came out, I think it was the end of 77, so just slightly more than a year. We And I, Joel started to get into trouble. I mentioned he had a drug problem, he was a junkie. Uh, I don't know where he is now, I don't know if he's alive or dead. The latter, I imagine um but he would get arrested and so um we'd have to find a drummer because he had gigs you know <laughs> so, uh, one of the neighborhood drummers uh, maybe hollywood being the neighborhood um we learned of was tim mcgovern and by this time also we had discovered that uh, oh rick bittner had left the band but we had discovered that our bass player i mean our roadie tim henderson was in fact quite an excellent bass player because we were back, we were reduced temporarily, had been reduced temporarily to a trio then again, Roger, myself, and Joel, and that great picture of us at the whiskey in front of the slide screen of the image of Andy Warhol and some pop art stuff mixed in a collage um, was with Joel, Roger, and myself, we were just a power trio for quite a while. Steve T was gone. Robinson had left, right? Uh, Rick had bailed. So we were back down to a power trio. Um, but when Joel would get, and we're still, meanwhile, we're still doing, the, you know, these seasonal um, um, fraternity party brawls. And um, we would occasionally need a drummer. So we'd call McGovern. And it was always great fun playing with him. He was a tremendous drummer. Um, he played all the drums on the Go album, mm. all, all the all the songs, drums, and all the tracks on the Go album, and uh, it was just great fun to play with as a drummer. And and we had discovered that Henderson was a, a we had we were then up in San Francisco as a, as a trio, and Henderson said, "Well, I played bass, you know, and I've been, and I I know the song Hit and Run Lover." David, why don't you go out? And, be just a front man or something. I don't know how the idea evolved, but anyway, he played bass on Hit and Run Lover, and I just did front man lead singer thing for a couple of songs at Mabuhay Gardens up in Frisco. I think it was the first time we did that. And so he kind of became the bass player, and I went back to playing guitar. And then gradually, as things evolved, and McGovern would periodically appear on our records as uh, as we finished up that first album, he played, I think, I don't know, three, four tracks on. We dumped about four tracks of the 10 or 11 songs we were going to put out on that first record. And we did some new ones with McGovern on drums because Joel was incapacitated or something. I don't know. 
And, and Montgomery was a better drummer. I said, look, we, we want you to do this. And so he also had a guitars on it. And so he became a member of the band along with Henderson at the same time. So we went from a three-piece to a five-piece virtually overnight as, with the advent and release of the pop album on the automatic label. So now we're a five-piece. And we're and McGovern was interesting. Oh, and oh, was um, Joel was still playing, appearing with us as drummer when we could keep him out of jail. So, but McGovern was playing guitar. He said, oh, "Look, I want to play. I want to play guitar. I don't really want to be a drummer. I'm a guitar player." And he had this kind of psycho, funkish style, Hendrixy kind of playing. But it was incredibly musical. He's a very musical man. I mean, you know, and and I was, you know fascinated by his his musicianship right and so you know he sang a little bit and so you know it's interesting additional guitar thing and default drummer and you know but a pain in the ass you know but nonetheless okay you know <laughs> do, do we have to do you know sort of firmly the ends justified the means at that point we'd been doing this for a while and we wanted to wanted to go somewhere with it finally you know so uh, as the five piece, we appeared and we started getting the good, you know, we were getting good gigs and around the whole Southland at that point, um, up, you know, been to San, San Francisco a couple of times and Arizona, I don't know someplace in Arizona, but, uh, so we were getting around and, uh, we finally got signed then, uh, later in the fall of 78, the album had been out for nine months or something like that. Uh, and because uh, it came out right at the end of 77, I think, kind of a, like a holiday thing. In September of 78, we got signed from playing a club down in Orange County someplace. <clears throat> Bud Scapa from Arista Records. We'd been, you know, we'd been trolling Arista for a while, Alan had, because he had worked with Claude Davis. Uh, years earlier at Columbia. So, and we hadn't really gotten any place with them, but Bud Scapa fell in love with the band when he saw us and said, I'm, I'm going to get you guys signed to Aniston, which he did promptly. And so it was like big excitement. And within like, I don't know, two weeks, we had this approval of a deal with Arista in the late, in the fall of 78. The evolution of the music had gone through numerous phases. Our best power pop stuff really was done with Robinson. Um, and of course, uh, you know, there's songs like Easy Action, which unfortunately the vocal on which was miserably undermixed, but uh, I've remastered that and tried to evoke a little more of that in, in a mastering context. But, uh, you know, uh, Easy Action, I mean, we, let's say Boulevard, uh, You Oughta Know, Walk in the Rain,
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You know, it was kind of the, I mean, the guy from the, the producer that did uh, Boomtown Rats loved Leather and Lace. And we met with him as producer when we got signed with Aristotle. We were shopping producers. He just was dying to produce the band, but he wanted that kind of stuff, which was not exactly Roger's wheelhouse, but I liked it. I wrote it, you know, and thought it was, I loved, I really liked it. I thought it was a great track.
So up to that point, there had been a fair amount of power pop stuff, some of which never, never emerged. There's a great song that Roger wrote called He's a Little Wild um, that uh, never appeared. Nobody's Toy, of course, was in that genre somewhat, although much more of that sort of monolith, uh, more of a hard-driving, dynamically monolithic track uh, that Roger liked. They were of an ilk. Uh, nobody's toy and uh, he's a little wild which nobody ever heard which is a great track what we did with Robinson in the early days of that production deal with George Tobin and Alan Rindy before Robinson left so th- that was really the power popish stuff you know uh, even hit and run lover you know I think um, could fall into that category and but as we moved in then to the deal with Arista, which took a while uh, to actually manifest, we didn't get started on that until the spring of '79. <clears throat> That's how long it took us to get off to get them off their asses, and for us to select a producer, because all the producers we were interested in had other projects that they had lined up before they could get to us, and in contradistinction to the knack who had that one great song and were knocking it down at the Troubadour. Oh, the Troubadour, that's another club that opened up because they were just doing, you know, country folk stuff, Dr. John, the night trip. But they started playing and doing rock stuff there and the Knack really was knocking them down there at the Troubadour with that song. And they got signed uh, to Capitol after, well after we were signed. Motels, well after we were signed. 2020, well after we were signed, but in that year of 79, by the time we got our shit together, um, these uh, other bands were right there at our shoulders, you know, uh, in terms of who was, uh, you know, advancing the power pop cause in LA at that time. Uh, and they enacted their record in, I don't know, a month or something like that. It was nuts. They just went in there and just like the boy, the Beatles, you recorded their first record, right? Just in and out, get it out in a month, you know, kind of just out, just very uh, succinctly. We were, you know, caught up in the elaboration of our three guitars, and we finally chose Earl Menke, uh, who Roger and I had been in association with or knew of since, since um, the Modern Lovers. In fact, I met David Robinson not at the Modern Lovers gig, but uh, he had called us from the Whiskey uh, at some point when Sparks were playing there, right after Modern Lovers finished their record before he went back to Boston, only to return after the holidays. Um, That's when we met Earl Mankey, was in 73. Mm -hmm. And Roger and I had talked to him end of the year 73 or the 74 he had just left sparks he had divorced uh we stayed in touch with him and we liked him he was tremendously helpful and technically very you know advisorly he had lots of good ideas and technical stuff for our recordings etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh because he he was an engineer he was also at the time had been working with beach place as an engineer so we liked her Abilities to work with him because he was a finally we had to choose and we thought well we we have a dialogue it's not going to be somebody coming in with an imprimatur to say this is where we're going to make your record kind of thing that we have to 
you know, suck it up and go along with it. You know, we thought there was more of a, uh, a pure level thing there. So we went with Earl, but we were, we were, you know, delayed in our elaboration with our three guitars and working things out at Earl's home studio before we went back into Sound City and to lay down the final tracks, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. took us a month of Sundays. We ended up coming out at the same time after, <clears throat> very, very shortly after, like the motels had uh, came out just before us. The knack had been out for a couple of months. Um, 2020 came out concurrently with, concurrent with us. Um, you know, so uh, we were suddenly in, in almost lost in the shuffle, you know, uh, in the dust, you know, of what was occurring in LA at that time. So, and, and plus we had endured, as you well know, from the point of immediately after radio, radio free Hollywood in 76, which was early 76, shortly thereafter, within a couple of months or a month or so, what came the advent of guess who the sex pistols, mm-hmm. which sent everyone to their closets and their four tracks to slightly reinvent themselves in order to uh, not be, left in the dust from that uh, catastrophe, you know, um, catastrophic occurrence in the industry, really. I mean, you know, the punk thing. So we had already kind of had to, and I say had to, but by the natural flow of things, evolved and, and pushed ourselves a little bit into this category of, quote, new wave. So the power pop thing, although there were still great power pop songs on the album, namely, she really means that much to me, even waiting for the night.
those two songs together on that side of the record, uh, Waiting for the Night, Indigo, I mean, remain one of my favorite combinations of songs on any album. I love listening to those two together. So there was still that aspect of our music, but we were kind of, uh, you know, working very hard to synthesize three guitars into a, an orchestral way of working, uh, carving out specific areas of uh, sonic uh, frequency within the mix of a, of a track uh, of a song uh, um, to, to, to gain clarity and meaning uh, and intricacy interest of the three guitars working together. So it became a much more elaborate process and a very much slower process by virtue of working with a very meticulous person in Earl Mankey. I mean, he's a very, very meticulous guy. Um, so and there were good things and bad things, you know, that, that went into that. And ultimately, I think not only did we suffer in uh, the sense of um, pacing of the release of the record amidst uh, those who followed us, followed us and being signed. Uh, we were the first band to be signed out of that L.A. milieu at the time and ended up just being amongst them in the final analysis. Uh, but also um, the record, I think, was overthought in the final analysis and uh, we lost the rawness that we had had on the best parts of the previous independent record the, the pop album so I don't ever think uh, even although it was a quote real record with a real label it was really as potent as the previous record was as and this is and and brian this is after years of reflection on this occasionally revisiting those records and listening to them it was it was a hard admission for me to come to that i think that kind of was the case somehow into overthinking it tamped it down a bit and then certainly, I mean, we can't even, I don't even talk to me about the Rhino record. That was, well, that was at the end of things, you know, 
um, uh, the great one of my one of, and this is really really breaks my heart. The best pop songs that the pop was ever responsible for, to my mind, was um, Broken Pieces. And we were rushed in the studio to finish that to do to do an al- to do an album for Rhino because we'd lost the Eras deal. McGovern was gone. We had reformed uh, with a new drummer, of course, Bob Robert Williams, who we picked up after the Arista record was done because Noel was by that time in prison, um, not just jail, but in prison. Uh, hence McGovern doing all the drumming. And that happened immediately after we signed with Arista. Practically, uh, Joel lit fire to his apartment with his girlfriend sleeping there and, you know, was arrested for arson and endangerment, uh, whatever you call it, um, criminal endangerment. Um, so he was in pr- jail at that point prison. And so, uh, so, but eventually when McGovern left, which is another long s- story where I'm not going to, well, in, involving Martha, and the motels and, and McGovern just being sort of, a rat bastard in the final analysis to us. Uh, and I, I, I speak of him in the most, in the kindest terms, but I mean, I really do, did like him. I do love, I admire his music, his musicianship. Um, I, I, you know, to this day kind of like him, although he's a scoundrel, you know, but, um, or was to us at that time. I, I, I've heard it since, you know, cleaned up his act, but you know, who knows? I, I, I hear about him through Bobby, through Robert Williams, the the pops um, drummer, uh, one of one of the late stage pop drummers, and who I have a very good relationship and admire, and whose drumming I admire quite a bit. Anyway, so he's still friends with McGovern, as is uh, Terry Henderson, Tim Henderson's wife. She's in touch with him a lot, so he's he's working about somewhere up in Seattle, but um. So it was a long and checkered story, um, but uh, in the end, when we were doing the Hearts and Knives album for Rhino, we had lost our Arista deal because of all these machinations and feelings of Arista's part and our part and the firing of Alan, which I will never, <laughs> never be at peace with now, especially uh, uh regret now that he's passed on um and i was dead against it but was outvoted and of course now we're on our own we're un we are unchaperoned (laughs) we are um in a dead deal with arista soon to have to pry ourselves free from it that by the end of uh 79 was uh, i'm sorry in yeah pretty much right around the end of the year right after mcgovern left beginning of 80 was evident we had to get out of that deal because they were uh, were holding us hostage and we started to submit demos to them. Well, we didn't actually know that we had to get out of it yet. By May, when we were going to Europe for a little stint, um, Jerry Heller agency, Jerry Heller was trying to get us out of the deal with Arista because they would not or move us forward in our deal. Trying to get clients to move forward with Letting, if in fact they were demanding this, which the second uh, it was an album, a second album, it was a recall and deal that they could require a second album for no additional advance other than our union payments, <clears throat> union wages, uh, if they decided to, that was support most 
companies did, but if we couldn't get a move ahead on it. Um, had them come and listen to us a couple of times, and I said, well, we don't really hear the song yet. There was some good stuff there. Uh, well, well, we're not hearing it, blah, blah, blah. So we came back to the States, and now we felt, that's it, we've just got to get out of this deal, which Buziak then pried us out of thinking that he could get us re-signed. Well, by the end of the year, we still were not re-signed. Desperate to get another record out before we lost all any and all momentum that we might still have been retaining, um, we uh, approached Rhino, uh, Harold Bronson, a close friend of Alan's, uh, with Alan's help, I think, to let let us do a record for them, which for, for which they paid, get this, $3,600 damn dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, of course, all we could do is a short, thing um sort of this mini lp i have six songs and it was rushed and uh, um tragically underproduced uh sounding empty and thin in the giant cavernous reality that is sound city studios <laughs> or was and uh you know with the engineer who had worked with earl mankey on the go out and us <laughs> and in in uh, and me being in uh fairly exhausted state of psychic metaphysical distress, I guess you could say at that stage. Um, and, and yet two more drummers down the line from Rob, from Bobby, Robert Williams, the guy who we had hired at the uh, release of the go album. So, um, now the drummer on that record being David Hoscott. So, um, you know, it was just a hopelessly poorly, produced record that was a story so but my favorite all-time pop song I, and maybe it's because it was so tragic we under realized on that record was uh broken pieces i and it's so simple it just needed a guitar break and i and it's just a you play the guitar solo after the second chorus back into a pre-chorus guitar solo back into the chorus a couple of choruses and out you know and it, it, it would have made all the it makes all the difference to that song. I mean, it's suddenly it's like this incredibly beautiful, full thing that is, you know, is it didn't have it just needed that one little extra thought that we couldn't give it for some reason, didn't give it, you know, under duress of stress of time and lack of money, you know.
and that came out in March or something like April or March of uh, 81. And by June, May or June, I had sort of, you know, said, like, I got to leave. I can't do this anymore. So um, our last gig was July 4th, I think, 81, uh, at a theater on Wilshire somewhere. It was a, it was a real, let me just say this about all this, that it was a real gift to have been a part of that, regardless of how the chips fell out, you know, and what we didn't achieve that we wanted to achieve, might've achieved, should have achieved, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was a gift to have been part of that and to have worked with some of the, knowing those people and those guys and worked with a lot of them, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was a, a great blessing in my life. <laughs> 